0: If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John and the sixth chapter, today we are concluding our series, Who Do You Say I Am? And we've been looking at this for two or three months now, and the videos have just been excellent, right? Aren't they great? I mean, today's video was so tremendous, and I'm kind of like Wade, you know, after what he shared, which was great, Wade, you just, Wade does so well with our kids, I'm really blessed by Wade and his gift and his call, but also the video. I'm like, you know, dude, I think we can just go, but you know me. I'm not going to let you get off on that easy. I'm going to go ahead and say a little bit more, but it's been, (laughs) thank you, Jay. It's been a, a, a wonderful time to look at who Jesus is. You know, I grew up in Roswell, New Mexico, which my standard joke is that explains a lot of my weirdness. Uh, They had aliens supposedly land there, and so some people think I might be close to an alien. Uh, But it was an interesting town to grow up in, in southeastern New Mexico. The largest body of water was the Pecos River. Yeah, it sounds a lot cooler than it really was. It wasn't all that much to look at. In fact, in some places, you could almost jump across it. It was not that big, of a body of water, so you can imagine that when I moved at seventeen to Mobile, Alabama, right there on, right there on Mobile Bay, it was the mouth of the mighty Mobile River coming down, and it emptied into the great Gulf of Mexico that I was fascinated. I had never seen such bodies of water, such beauty all around that city. I remember playing golf. Uh, As a college student, South Alabama is where I went, and they had a golf course right on the bay. It was the old airfield, and they had kind of inherited it. And so it wasn't much of a golf course, but my goodness, you're right on Mobile Bay. Who cares? It was beautiful. And I remember being fascinated with the beauty and with the mystery and the wonder of all of the water. I think bodies of water around the world are some of the most treasured things we have in creation. They are beautiful sights with their rich blue hues and their creatures great and small. Like when we go to the Gulf and we go out on a jet ski and try to get close to all the dolphins that are swimming out there. And the sunrises and the sunsets, man, they can hardly be matched. You might could do it in the mountains, but the sea has some beauty all its own. But as much as we love and are hypnotized by the beauty of the sea, we can also become terrorized by its danger. It can so quickly turn from calm waters to rising swells that can literally capsize and take over vessels, large and small. Just ask the disciples. John chapter 6 and verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three to four hours, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Can you imagine their desperation, their exhaustion? Uh, These are seaworthy, crusty old fishermen. Actually, they weren't that old. They were young. But don't you call all all fishermen old and crusty? My dad's sitting right there, Curtis, Jim. Feels like they're... Maybe I shouldn't say it. But these guys were seaworthy. They were, they were rugged men. They weren't, they weren't wimps. They were used to the sea. They were used to what this Sea of Galilee meant for them. They, many of them lived on the sea. They, they worked the sea. And yet they are in real danger and they know it. They had been rowing all night to make a trip that would normally just take about an hour to get there. And like Skipper and Gilligan on their three-hour tour, these guys had launched into a nighttime excursion that turned into a nightmarish emergency. Everything changed. Just earlier that day, Jesus had fed 5,000 men and they had been there, all these guys in the boat. They had been there along with these 5,000 men and their their wives and their children. It could have been many more thousand than 5,000. And Jesus had proved that he, as the son of God, would take care of his people. But now in the terror of their moment, they had forgotten all about that. They had seen him feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fish. But right now, that didn't seem to matter. They were exhausted. They felt abandoned. abandoned, And their fear was growing exponentially. They were fearful. And that's when Jesus showed up. I love that Jesus shows up right when we need him the most. Don't you? Jesus immediately turned the situation with just two words. In Greek, those two words are... are ego and me ego and me and it literally means i am they can hardly be aware of the moment because after all they're trying to save their lives their lives from being drowned in the water but there was great significance to what jesus was saying to them at that moment he is saying in my translation it is i And then he adds, don't be afraid, but probably a more significant way to translate it is, I am here. Don't be afraid. Or maybe even more profound, fear not, I am. Over these last few months, we have looked at the I am statements of Jesus, seven of them to be exact, But there are many other times that Jesus uses these two same words, ego and me, to describe who he is. We've looked at the seven where he's spelled out, but there are at least seven and many others, really, where he uses these words to describe who he is, that he is the great I am. Jesus uses this these words and in almost in passing sometimes and it's fascinating and I just want to give you a recap of the seven we've looked at but also seven others that you may want to look at as well. First the one we're looking at today John six twenty. it is I or I am here do not be afraid. It's also referenced in Matthew 14, 27 and, Max, and Mark six fifty, And then in Mark 14, 62, when the high priest is interrogating Jesus for, being, for claiming to be the Son of God, he says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says to him, I am, ego and me. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Wow. Speaking truth to power. Then in John 6 35 and 48 and 51, he says, Ego am me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in John 8:12, Ego am me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. In John 8, 18, ego and me, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness. I just shared my password with whomever. There we go. Okay. Hopefully you got it. Uh, I lost my place. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And then in John 10, verse 7 and 9, Truly, truly, I say to you, Ego am me, the door of the sheep. In John 11, 25, Ego am me, the resurrection and the life. In John 13, 19, I am telling you this now he says to his disciples as they are together for the Lord's supper before it takes place that when it does take place you may believe that I am he ego am me and then in John 15:1 we looked at last week ego am me the true vine I am the true vine And then when they come to arrest Jesus in John 18, verses 4, 5, 6, and 8, Jesus asked them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, Ego and me. I don't know if you can feel the weight of what he is declaring each time he says it. It's significant. Anyone who ever says Jesus never claimed to be God has never read these verses. They're all the I am statements. They are Jesus bearing witness of who he is and the father also bearing witness of the same. But let's go back. Without getting lost in all of those multiple I am statements, and many of which that we have looked at, I want to just specifically focus on the one we talked about today. The one in John 6. But maybe we'll look at it from another account. You see there's another version of it in Mark. Mark chapter 6, verse 48. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, which is at 3 a.m. in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. I don't know what he's doing there. I think it's funny, though, that that's, (laughs) that's in there. He meant to pass by them. What? What are you doing, Jesus? It's just like he's trying to, I don't know, harass them a little bit. I don't know what he's trying to do. I always say that my love language is harassment. Maybe that was Jesus's. I don't know. Just, you know, making them cry out. I just make, make, wait, I don't know. But he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Ego, me. I am here. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I love that verse 48, right? Did you catch it? And he saw that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. I kind of feel like that might that describes my progress sometimes. Anybody else? I'm making headway, but painfully. It's not coming easy. Sometimes I'm not even making headway and it's still painful. Sometimes I'm I'm going backwards, and that's really painful. Their headway was so painful, so arduous on their part, it was that way because the wind was against them. I mean, that spells out very obvious things, but I think there's spiritual significance to that. They're hitting headwinds, which makes their headway painful. I don't know about you, But I think that pretty much describes the year 2020. If ever there was a verse that could be labeled to this year we're living in, it would be this one. Making headway painfully, for the wind is against us. Feels like a whole lot of work, not a whole lot of progress. And I wonder how many times that the wind that is against us, though we typically think it's the work of the enemy, I wonder how much of it is the wind of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 8? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born the spirit now I realize that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again but I think it's fascinating to consider that the wind of the spirit which is the breath of God is the spirit himself the ruach the breath could actually impact us in ways that we don't really like might blow us around in ways that we're uncomfortable with, might come up out of a storm that we didn't even know was gonna come, and it's all inspired by the Spirit of God. It's interesting to consider that the wind of His Spirit is not always the gentle breeze that we all like. Sometimes it's the gusty squall that is working against us. It's so working against us because there's purpose there. It's designed to help us see that what we've been trusting before is not trustworthy, that where we've been putting our confidence has no confidence, that only Jesus is where we can put our hope, that it's in him and him alone, as we sang this morning, that we can find confidence. You know what's rather peculiar about this story is that a lot of Bible scholars try to explain it away. They try to act like it wasn't a miraculous happening. And you can read some, and it's fascinating to me that they call themselves Bible scholars, but they're basically trying to reason with people to explain it. They simply see that Jesus, uh, this is the explanation, he wasn't really walking on the water. They were actually closer to the shore than they thought they were. So in all the midst of the storm and the strife, he was really walking on the seashore, and they just thought he was walking on the water. When I read stuff like that, I have a theological term for it, hogwash. (laughs) That's not a theological term. I just like saying that word, right? Hogwash. That's a bunch of baloney. That's a, it's amazing to me that even those that call themselves followers of Christ would like to explain away the miraculous. They're still doing it today. They want to explain it away. They want to have a Jesus who is limited by the laws of physics instead of the one who created it in the first place. Why must we feel the need to reduce him to our understanding? Why must we use scientific method to explain away the unexplainable? I'll tell you why. Because humans think they're God. Humanity would rather see itself as God. And so if we can explain it, then we don't have to have uncertainty, which might lead to faith and which might cause us to trust him. This is a miraculous sign. Jesus walked on the water, and he didn't sink. The story would never have been remembered and never told in Scripture if it was just a magic trick or an optical illusion. There was so much more. But while I fully believe that indeed this was a physical happening, I'm even more impacted by the spiritual significance of it. You see, because throughout Scripture, there are Old Testament promises and prophecies to this happening. And my favorite is found in Psalm 107, verse 28. The psalmist says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven man if that doesn't prophetically tell the story we just read i don't know what does written hundreds of years before it happened that's exactly what happened to these disciples jesus spoke peace producing words don't be afraid ego and me i am my anchor holds within the veil not in what i see and what my perception is and what i can intellectualize and what i can theorize and what i can assess but rather in jesus he is the i am The storm was stilled, and all at once, the Bible tells us, they were at their destination. That's another miracle. (laughs) I don't think they were, and see, this is why they explain it, that they were so close to the shore, because boom, they were there. No, that's not true. Jesus was there, the storm was stilled, and then they got to the shore. Jesus had seen them in their struggle, which he always does. If you're struggling today, I want to reassure you that Jesus sees you. He saw them in their struggle. He took extraordinary steps to watch over them. He had already done the miracle of feeding the thousands to show them he has enough. He always has enough to provide for us. And he will get us to where we are going Our destination is not uncertain. When we are with him, when we look up to him, he will get us where we need to be. And he got them there. Like every other story in the Bible, this, this is what I try to do, and this is my encouragement to you to do, is don't just read it and try to understand it, but read it in such a way that you see yourself in it. Ask yourself, what does it mean to me? What is God saying to me in this story? What is he showing me? Because that's the power of God's revelation. It didn't just happen then. Jesus intends to get in your boat too. He intends for you to have the power of this revelation happening in your life. That's what I want to ask us. What does it mean for us Our familiar routines of getting into our boats and going to our other sides, they've been interrupted by a fierce wind. We've been interrupted every way you can imagine this year. When you got into the boat on January 1st, 2020, could you have imagined What waves and turbulent storm would come your way? Could you have imagined the wind that would come out of nowhere and change everything? I couldn't imagine it either. We've seen the fierce wind, the squall of 2020. So many crashing waves. Wind gusts like we've probably never seen before. But let me encourage us to stop looking at the waves that are crashing around us. Start looking at Jesus. Here's a word from God. Turn off the TV. I'm serious. Turn off the podcast. Step away from the news source. Step away from all the hype and the drama, and the hysteria. Step away, stop being transfixed on every rage and conspiracy that comes along and fix your eyes upon Jesus, who is the perfecter, who is the pioneer, who is the one that started it and is the one who will get us where we need to go. Put your eyes on Jesus, as the hymn says, Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our headway may be painful. It is. For the wind is against us. And while some of that wind might be the opposition of the enemy, It's quite possible that some of it, much of it, is the wind of God's spirit. He's shaking everything that can be shaken. And I, if I find myself shaky, then that probably means I had some stuff that needs to be shaken out. He wants to get in your boat today. He is walking across our storm-driven lives. The waters that are turbulent and crazy and unknown and confusing. And he's walking right up to you. Will you let him in your boat? Will you hear his words to you today? Don't be afraid. Ego and
1: For God is all in all. He is the one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds all creation together. And so your confidence cannot be misplaced. God is not forgetful of us. You can cast your cares on him because he is so very careful with you. Father, we receive your love and your goodness. Regardless of where we are in life today, regardless of what we perceive as lacks, regardless of Circumstances or relationships or history or the future, Mm -hmm. we acknowledge that your presence makes a difference and that that is the thing that you have promised us above all else. That's right. That you will be with us Mm -hmm. suddenly, immediately, consistently. We can count on you. Forgive us for putting our confidence in other things. Forgive us for allowing anxiety to overtake when you have been so very clear that you are altogether trustworthy. Yes, Lord. You alone are good and right and true. And we can lean on you. You've invited us to do that. Because you delight in lifting us up. So that we don't stumble and fall. Receive our gratitude this morning as your due, Lord. Quicken our faith. And remind us to turn our eyes to you and fix them on you so that we will not waver in unbelief.
0: Yes, Lord. Lord, when we got in the boat this year, we didn't know all this would happen. And sometimes we've we've wondered how we would ever make it to the other side. And it seems like every crashing wave upon every crashing wave brings greater uncertainty and greater ambiguity and greater confusion and then fear and anxiety and concern and worry. And Lord, those things, they're just not pleasing to you. We need to see you coming for our boat. We need to hear your words. Don't be afraid. I am here. I am here in your midst, ego and me. I am. Lord, I pray that that reality would give us sure ground to stand on. We know that your promise is true, that you will not only be with us, you will never forsake us. And so that means in the middle of these days that we live in, you're calling us to get beyond ourselves and to trust you. And then to invite other people into that same trusting relationship, to be about the Father's business in our land where everybody's gripped with fear and anxiety, where everybody's concerned about what will happen and what if. But Lord, we know the future is held by you. It's in your hand. So we submit to you and we ask that you will calm our own spirits, that you will deal with our own fear, that you will get in our boat and get us where we're going and help us be about your business. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.